The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, Son, and Spirit, I say thank you for the promise that when we call upon your name, you will save us. Of course, that promise is true in an absolute sense that you will save us and make us Christians, deliver us from our sin. And it is also true in an incremental sense. Day after day, once Christians, you save us continually. And so I call out to you now and I ask you to save me. And I call out to you and I ask you to save my brothers and sisters here, adult men and women, teenagers, younger. We are gathered here today, Lord, as your people. Some guests here, but most of us, we come here every week. We are gathered here before you in need of your saving work. Some probably need it in the absolute first sense, but all of us need it in the incremental sense. And I ask you, would you save us today? Save us from error and from destruction. Save us from excessive sorrow, heaviness. Save us from confusion error. Save us from habit and tendency towards sin. And save us to a life that is is beautiful in righteousness and holiness. Is full of joy and hope and rest in a God who is good and has it all in your hands. Save us to that, Lord, I, I pray. I ask you to do that for me and my own heart and for your people gathered here. And towards that end, Lord, speak to us from this passage. Show us some new aspect of the glory of Christ that, as the song says, cannot be contained in heaven. It can't be bottled up in a jar. As Renee prayed, the Solomon knew that you, you can't be contained in some temple, some building here. You cannot be contained, but yet we pray that you would allow us to comprehend some piece of you truly and accurately and to see some piece of your glory here that it would shine forth and, and awaken us and stir us and, and remake us. Lord, make us a different people because of this passage this morning. We need your Spirit's power for that. And so I ask you, Father, to commission the Spirit to run through here, through this room, and take these words and give life to them. If he doesn't, it's just English. But if he does, it's the power of God. It's not up to me. I'm just a speaker. It's up to you, Father, Son, and Spirit. And so I pray, take your word Unpack your word with these words that I'll speak and take that word and plant it in us and produce a crop, a fruitful crop from it. Please. Apart from you, we can do nothing. So we look to you, Lord. Our eyes are on you. 
You are our hope. You are our God, our Savior, our lover, our friend, the husband of your bride, the church, Jesus. Thank you. Father, thank you. Build us, I pray. I pray this for your great sake and for our good. Amen. We return this week to the first three chapters of the book of Revelation and our study there of the letters to the seven churches. We're spending several weeks here on this, hoping to listen to these words and to hear in them what the Spirit says to the churches. That's the refrain at the end of each one of these letters. Hear what the Spirit says to the churches because we want to grow. We want to be a church that is pleasing to Christ, the head of the church. So we come here and, and we look at these letters and we think and ask God to, to, to plant them deeply in us. And what we've seen so far in chapter 1 was the, the basics of the book and the basics of the letters, the, the theological underpinnings laid out, namely the sovereignty of God, God the Father and God the Son. He is God who reigns over all and has it all under His control. He, he's draped over it all and has it, everything that we face including, and and particularly, he has the tribulation that we as Christians face. Another main theme in this book and in these letters. We've seen it pop up numerous times, how the church faces trouble. It's just, for these folks, and for us, but especially for these folks, it's hard being a Christian. And all the trouble that, that we and they face, he has it. He's got it under control. We see that in the first chapter, and then it's developed throughout the following letters, and the most recent particular issues that we saw raised were two weeks ago when we were last here in the letter to the church in Pergamum, verses 12 to 17. And that church there, it had done well on some things, and Christ commends the church for doing well. Particularly, it does well in, in holding on to the name of Christ, not letting go of Christ in the midst of persecution. It was a very difficult place. They had a heavy Roman influence, a lot of pressure to worship the emperor there, and they didn't let go of Jesus, even in the midst of persecution. And, and he commends them for that, but not all was well, and that's where it kind of came around to us. In that culture back then, the heart of the problem that they faced in that church and several of the churches, including the church we're going to look at today, the church in Thyatira, the great pressure that they faced there was, was the temptation to embrace the idolatry of the surrounding culture. And while holding on to Jesus, also hold on to that. And, and to have a, a dual allegiance. So not letting go of Christ, but also grabbing on to what the world offers, what the world wants to offer up as a hope for our heart, idolatry. So they're trying to form a dual allegiance, and Christ confronts them on that. doesn't want them interested in that. And as I tried to tie that to us, I brought up the idea of the American dream. Because I think that for us, I talked about this two weeks ago, if you can want more on this, you can listen to that sermon, but I think that for us, the greatest way that we today, as the church in America, are tempted to hold on to the name of Christ and grab the idolatry of the culture around us is to grab hold of the pursuit of the American dream. Missing the American dream. Because it's a dream. It's what you aspire to when you finally arrive. Money is the vehicle that buys it for you if you get the money, but money is not the issue. It's, the, it's that desire to... I'll say it like this. The American hope to live a life that is ah, 
now, right now. A life of personal rest and personal ease and personal fulfillment and personal contentment with the stuff that I have here in this world right now. (sighs) Which runs contrary to the life that Christ lays out for those who would take up their cross and follow Him daily. Those are at odds with each other. Now, as I said, how you slice and dice that because how much of the American dream is not sinful but is appropriate given we live in this place and we have electricity. That gets complicated. I'm not going to try to draw those lines. But I just alert the church to the fact that we swim in water that we don't often see. We swim in a culture that's inviting us and luring us to an idolatry that in many places is contrary to Christ. So we talked about that two weeks ago. And when we switch to verse 18, we switch churches, but we don't exactly switch problems. We'll still be thinking about this, but we're going to be talking about it in a very different way. So I'm not really, all that I just said is behind the story today, but I'm not really going to, to lean on that very much. Because when we switch churches and switch letters here, we we come to the same basic problem with a little different emphasis. And so this kind of forms a complementary passage to the one that we were just in two weeks ago. The core of what the Spirit says to the church today in, in our passage, verses 18 through 29, I'm going to express it like this. Christ is committed to doctrinal truth in the church. And he will deal with us to make sure that it happens. Christ is committed to doctrinal truth, to doctrinal purity in the church, and he will make sure that that comes about one way or the other. He'll deal with us. That's what we're going to move towards this morning. Let me read the passage. This is Revelation chapter 2, verse 18 to the end of the chapter. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works." And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each of you as your works deserve. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end. To him I will give authority over the nations. 
And he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Revelation 2. I'm going to unpack this main idea in three points. The first one, relatively brief, is concerned with what Christ sees as good in the church. What he sees as as good as in the church there in Thyatira, here it is, good works in the church are important to Christ. Simple. Good works in the church are important to Christ. So it should be to us too. I'm going to move towards this by starting in verse 18. He says there, as, as all the letters have begun, he commands that this be written to the church, a letter be written to the church. And once more, he takes some of the imagery from the end of chapter 1, and he's going to apply it because it fits into the situation in Thyatira. Thyatira was a smaller town in, in what is modern-day Turkey, on the smallish side, and it had a certain, a certain warlike orientation to it. I'll, I'll say warlike, not that it was angry and in conflict, but it had a militaristic bent, and that there was a, a military garrison in this smallish town, so it had a kind of a big footprint. And also, of, of the gods that were worshipped there in town, chief among them was the god Apollo, who was often depicted as a great mounted warrior on a war horse in armor and brandishing a, a great battle axe known as the son of Zeus, who was the, the chief god in the Greek pantheon. So here's this, this high god who's depicted in armor as a soldier. And there's a military outpost there, and so there's kind of this bent to it. And to that church in that city, the real son of God, not the son of Zeus, Apollo, but the real son of God presents himself to that church in militaristic, warlike terms. He has eyes like a flame of fire, burning in intensity and insight to burn away all impurity. He has feet of burnished bronze. Feet are depicting the the path, the the life that he walks. And it again is a purified path coated in armor. Bronze was a significant element in in that town because of the, the military. So he's, he's depicted as, as a clad in armor, pure and righteous, and going to burn away all other. He's setting himself up to go on the attack. And he's going to in a moment, but before he does that, he has something commendable to say. He has eyes that search the heart and the mind, and when he searches the heart and mind of this church, he looks in and he sees something very good. Verse 19, I know your works. That is, I know the path that you walk, the the life, what you are about. And the works then are, are clarified or expanded on, you might say, by the next four words. Your works, that is, your love and faith and service and the patient endurance, we've seen it so, so constantly, patient endurance. He looks at this church and says, I know you are a people of love and faith and service and patient endurance, and even more, it's growing. 
Your latter works exceed the former. This is a church that, this is, this is commendable. This is a church that is this, this collection of good works and it is on the ascendancy, ascendancy. It's, it's growing. Positive. When you compare it to what he said to the church in Ephesus, back in 2 verse 2, he also commended their works back then. They, they also had toil, but they didn't have love which is what he chastised that church for, these folks also have love and faith. They have a deep and growing love for God and love for people. They have a deep and growing dependence on God. They are patiently enduring under everything that's pressing against them. Good works mark this church. It's a great thing. Which might hit some of us as kind of odd, because if we're honest... A number of us have difficulty even with the phrase good works. We kind of don't want to talk about that, particularly because we are, are very aware that every other false religion in the world, especially all that's kind of around us right here where we live, takes good works and equates them to how one comes into union with God. And so wanting to avoid that error, we kind of get rid of good works and prefer not to talk about them. Well, that's not right. It's, God is concerned about good works among his people, and he's very pleased as he looks at this church. Very pleased to see good works. And so we should be also in the church from Christians, those who have already become Christians. This is the key. We become Christians. We come into union with God by grace alone, through faith alone. And what comes out after that is a life that is marked by good works. Because this grace changes us to live and to walk in a different way. This is, this is very important. We must not think that it is, it is sufficient to hold proper theology. What our statement of faith, we were talking about it in the class this morning. Our statement of faith actually has a point in it that has a sentence that says, we want to hold together the grace that saves, I'm paraphrasing it, the grace that saves and the grace that sanctifies. Saved by grace and sanctified by grace what comes out of this sanctifying, this changing, this cleansing, is a life of good works. And that's a good and fine and right thing. It is. We should understand that Jesus wants righteousness in his people. That is... He wants right thinking and right loving and right living in all sorts of ways, right giving and right serving, righteousness. Which is not opposed to grace. It comes from grace. Do you remember Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10, talks about how I worked, he uses the word worked, I worked harder than any of them. Who did? Paul. I got up in the morning. I worked. 
All day long, I got on the boat, I sailed over here, I walked down to the temple, I entered the synagogue, I debated with folks, I did that. And then he says, comma, but not I. Wait a minute, I thought you just said you did it. I worked harder than all of them, but it wasn't me. It was the grace of God with me. He, he did it with his hands, with his feet, yes. The grace of God, though, was what was the power in him that was changing him from the inside so that what came out was a different life of good works. That's how the Christian life is ordered. Not works before so as to be saved, works after. Now, I know some of you are, are really crystal clear on this, and I'm beating a dead horse, but I put it up here in, in front of us all because some perhaps aren't clear on this, but even those of us who are, there's a point here in that we should think of, now as a Christian, you should think of the daily walk of your life as I am supposed to, Christ would be pleased by me walking in righteousness. Do I? Am I? I think... Many of us never think about that. We just live. We, we just live. I, I'm saved, thank goodness, and now I will live. Rather than saying, is love marking me right now? Am I marked by faith right now? Service. Patiently enduring. Am I marked by that? No. Lord, I'm sorry. Repentance. Lord, I'm sorry. And an act of obedience while saying, God, change my heart. Empower me to walk in your ways of good works. And you can pray that because you already are a Christian. With the Spirit of God already living in you. Already motivated to change you and grow you in righteousness. So, that's all, that's all the first point. And it's not really the point of the letter. But it's worth us noting, he's pleased by good works in the church. And that's appropriate for a Christian. But it's not sufficient. Because he moves on to the main deal. He's got a problem with the church of good. He's got a problem with the church of good works. So, the second point. Tolerating false teachers endangers the whole church. Tolerating false teachers endangers the whole church by exposing the church to the destruction of the world and separating the church from the God who was good for it. I mean, there's a, there's a danger there. And there also is a danger because it exposes the church to the discipline of God. Tolerating false teachers endangers the church. When in verse 20, Christ switches to state and then, and then elaborate on the problem, he's going to describe a very similar problem to what we saw up above. He uses even the same language of sexual immorality and idolatry. It's the same basic deal there that's going on in, in some of the other cities. But when he states the problem, there's one important difference. 
Up in verse 14, if you look at verse 14, you'll see he says there, you have some there who hold this teaching. In 15, same thing. You have some there. In verse 20, he changes to, you tolerate that teacher. He changes to, you tolerate that teacher. There's a difference there. Using the word tolerate, allow, overlook, it's actually the word for forgive. The difference, the other church has some people here who are, who are wandering, who are misled, and this church has the misleader, the misleader present and tolerated. That's the difference here. That's why I'm going to be leaning on something slightly different this morning. This Jezebel here is allowed free reign in the church. Now, he calls her Jezebel, not because that was her literal, literal name, but on the contrary, because how Jesus uses uh, Balaam and Balak up above in the previous letter to call in an Old Testament context, he's using Jezebel again to call in a different Old Testament context. You can read about this in 1 Kings 18 and following. But in brief, Jezebel was the wife of King Ahab when he reigned over the the northern kingdom of Israel, the ten northern tribes of Israel. So she was queen, Jezebel. She's on the inside. Unlike Balaam and Balak who were on the outside trying to, to work an attack against Israel, Jezebel is on the inside. At the very top, on the inside, and by her deliberate planned processes, she led the whole, this massive group of people, she led them into the worship of Baal and Asherah, two prominent gods, idols of of the land in that day. From the inside, from the palace. Now, that was significant idolatry, and probably, there's there's obviously a lot of, of sexual language in this passage. It's probably picking up from the Old Testament Very often in the Old Testament, idolatry and a veering away from God is described in sexual terms. A veering away from the God to whom they were married is adultery. The giving of yourself to some other God is immorality. That's probably what's meant here. Now, also, worship was often immoral back then, so it it could have been something literal, but it's probably used as a metaphor. They've committed adultery against their Husband, the Lord. Just like the woman in the church in Thyatira is doing, leading them towards it. Jezebel in the church is a false teacher who lures them into idolatrous compromise of some sort, and Jesus' reaction is serious. I mean, serious. This is where the warrior comes in. He's going to kill people. Jesus? Kill people? Well, yeah. In the church, in fact. Which is not the first time. You recall from 1 Corinthians 12 where some have fallen asleep because they abused communion. Christ disciplines the church, and sometimes that involves even taking of life. So we should sit down here. This is serious. 
There are some here who he has, says, I have offered repentance, I have, I have called for repentance, and they are not willing. Jezebel and her children are not willing, and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come down. And there are some here also who the jury's still out. They may yet repent of her works, end of verse 22, but if not, he's going to throw them into great tribulation. So far, we've only seen tribulation caused by non-Christians against the church. This is Jesus himself is going to bring tribulation against the church. This should stop us for a minute. Because Jesus himself is, I'll say, highly concerned. Is he not? Highly concerned. Even in a church marked by such wonderful good works, I know that you are full of love and faith and service and patient endurance and that that's growing and I'm about to drop the hammer. He's highly concerned about this point. That doesn't compute in some of our minds because we're probably tempted to think you know, four out of five is pretty good. I mean, faith and love, and those are those are great words, and patient endurance are holding to you. I mean, you know, maybe a slight correction on point five about how we're tolerating this Jezebel. His reaction is extremely stern. He is bent on cleaning house. And he has to be because he is the God of truth and love. And to be about only one or the other is to be about neither. To be about only truth or love is to be about neither truth nor love. He is both. And he is highly pleased Highly pleased. He gives great commendation to a church of love and says, but I will not tolerate four out of five. He can't love the church and he can't love the glory of God and overlook this. And we can't either. This is the main point. Obviously, there's a warning here against people personally being involved with the idolatry that that Jezebel would offer, but I kind of talked about that before. So what I'm emphasizing here this morning is the uniqueness of this letter, the tolerating of the false teacher. And this is tough for us because we live in an age where tolerance has become chief among all virtues. We must not fall prey to that. Christ's honor and the good of His church, the good of His people, is at stake. The good right now, the eternal good even of people in the room, the eternal good of people outside of the room, in whose lives we may have influence or not. We have to oppose false teaching in our midst. This is the elders' responsibility especially. 
through teaching and correcting, eventually perhaps even leading to church discipline, eventually even at the end leading to casting someone out at the, at the final step of church discipline. That's the elder's responsibility, but it is all of the church, all of the church's responsibility. Well, how do we do that? Well, again, keeping in mind the truth and love union, ironically, the defense of truth begins with love. Because you see the point, the point here is that the tolerating of false teachers endangers the church. If you see, the church is endangered when we let this go. And I love the church and I care about the church. Love fuels a concern for truth and a concern to chase out false teaching. It begins with a, a desire to, to see God in all of His truthfulness, God in all of His accuracy lifted up in front of people and a realization that that truth is what sets people free. I think Jesus said that. I know Jesus said that. The truth sets them free. And if we let error stand, and, and we let it reign and run and take over people, people are led away from the only good there is and into the wickedness of all of the world around us and destroyed by it. And so for love of people, we say no to error and yes to truth. Out of love for people, may God build this conviction in you that you want the truth more than you want anything else. Even if it unsettles what you think you already know. Even then, that you want the truth. May God give you a desire to know Him in truth and live a life conformed by truth. This is the great danger that we often overlook in this setting. Because, because tolerance and a live and let live attitude seem so easy and so attractive we very often overlook the fact that people are destroyed. They perish in the absence of truth and in the ascendancy of falsehood. Kills. It separates us from the God who is truth and exposes us to all the world. Run by one who hates you and wants to kill you and destroy you. This is why Christ is so bent on ending this. It's very easy to read this, and if you're a Christian, to be kind of surprised by it, or if you're not a Christian, to think, man, this is some guy who's really ticked off that he's not most important anymore. Really mean. Really heavy-handed. I mean, that's not love. It is, in fact, very much love. If a medical doctor says, you know, this is, we're going to have to cut you open to deal with that problem, and I don't like to make you bleed, so I won't do it. That's not, that's not the doctor you want. If there's another way, of course, sure, but you understand what I'm saying. Sometimes you've got to cut things out. Sometimes you need to actually remove cancer for the health of the whole. In love, he says, I'm going to come down on this. 
I'm going to afflict. I'm going to even remove from the scene people who are deceiving. So may we have the same realization that love for people and love for the church involves radical commitment to truth. That's the first place we have to start. A desire for truth. And not just a desire to be right, but a desire to bless and serve and love with truth. There's a difference there. Being right is about me. Serving and loving you with truth is about you and God. We have a desire to give the truth to people and be about truth and to wield it for others' good. And with that mindset, then we approach truth with the idea of of a target, with a bullseye and concentric circles. And get this idea here. I'm showing with my hands a circle in the middle, which is the bullseye, and then circles that go out a little further away until we're on the periphery here. And things out here are not as central, not as important as things in here in the bullseye. And for a Christian, what's in the bullseye is the gospel. Around which we draw a really, really solid line and are unyielding on. This is the message crystal clear throughout all of the Bible. The good news about what God has done to save. That He sent God the Son to earth to take on a body. So God became man at a real point in history. And He did that for a reason. He did that to address the problem that none of us in any way whatsoever with no massive pile of good works could ever solve. The fact that our sin has offended a holy God. God acted to send His Son to address that problem. To take on to His Son the wrath and the curse of God due to sinners like me. He hung Him up on a tree under the curse of God. Though he had lived a perfect, righteous life, God in flesh never sinned, of course, a life completely full of good works. He had never sinned, but he took the wrath of God against sin anyway, and then gives to people who trust him a credit of clean, forgiven in the eyes of God. Raised from the dead again to prove that it worked to defeat even our last enemy death, coming again from heaven to reclaim His people. This, in a nutshell, is the message of the Bible about what God has done to save. And around that, we cannot tolerate difference. But as we move away from the center, not only do we move away from the amount of, of material in the Bible about various other issues and thoughts and opinions and ideas, but we move away from the clarity with which it's expressed. And sometimes, don't we as Christians just have theories? I I have nothing against homeschooling, but I don't think it's mandated in the Bible. Can you get there from some principles? Yeah, okay. That's It's got to be out here, guys. And so, of course... 
we sit here with homeschoolers, public schoolers, and Christian schoolers, all in the same room. And that's fine. Because it's out here. It's not here. We approach the defense of truth with a desire to love people with truth, and then we come to this bullseye and say, I'm going to tenaciously defend the center. And of course, wisdom makes it, wisdom is critical in discerning how close are we to the center. I acknowledge that. But it gives you a decent paradigm. There's one more thing that we need to consider. Because though I've just said, here's how you could approach truth with an idea of love and, and an idea of, of defending the center tenaciously and then less so as we move out, there's, there's another point which I think kind of comes at one of our, our biggest problems with this, the whole idea of, of defending truth. So here it is. Final point. The faithful Sound church wins. The faithful, sound, doctrinally sound church wins. In the end, triumphs over all opposition. I'm just trying to be really simple about this. So think with me for a moment about this. I'm going to come to the scripture in a minute, but I want to try to develop what I think is one of our biggest problems in this area. It connects to what we fear, and one of the things that I think leads us to compromise with and to tolerate Jezebels and the like. We fear that we will lose and be marginalized in society at least, be ridiculed, be embarrassed, be shot down, be ineffective. We will lose. We all know that if a person or a church takes a stand on anything, it will alienate somebody. And because we Americans believe that bigger is better, and so therefore we believe the big church wins. Now, I'm making some assumptions there about what you believe, and and maybe prayerfully you don't, but it's around us. We think bigger is better, and we think bigger church is better church. And so therefore, we also know that a big church is built up by careful application of the doctrines taught in how to win friends and influence people. Essentially, be nice, tell them what they want to hear, and give them what they want. That's how you build a big tent coalition and win elections. Right? You put a platform, a plank in the platform for everybody. And the ones that are going to be offensive, you either remove them or stand very lightly on them, only occasionally if you have to. Because we think bigger is better. And we're strongly tempted to avoid doctrine because doctrine just divides. Who needs that? Well, if Thyatira had stood against Jezebel and her children, there would have been a mess. 
at least they all would have left the church in a church split. And probably they would have taken some of the other ones who were in the middle still wavering, probably would have taken some of them with them also. And certainly the whole community all around that Jezebel and company were tied into would have said, what an unloving, what a judgmental, what an ungracious people. I want nothing to do with them. And seemingly the influence of that church and the culture would have evaporated and they would have lost. That attitude, that that line of thinking is what lies behind some really big movements. If you've encountered much or read much of what is loosely called the emergent church, there are some, not every single person, and when you paint with a big brush, I I know I'm going to offend somebody and, and be wrong, so I'm saying up front, not everybody, but there are some in that movement that are, are really very concerned about not alienating people and are more interested in, in, in dialogue about differences than in actual proclamation about truth. And in some of those quarters, it has gone so far that there are some who actually even deny there is a hell at all. Where did that start? That started with a, with, with a good goal of winning of being influential and of gaining a hearing and of drawing people towards something and it ended up with there's nothing to draw them towards. It starts with a desire to win. And unfortunately, it is tragically off. But So that's, that's in some really big things out there, but dropping down to less dramatic and more the place where we live, it's not always an issue of heresy or or false teaching or something of that sort, but on just the level of ordinary doctrine, I mean, take an example from our church. We believe, we teach, that the Bible teaches that men and women are of equal value in God's sight. Of completely equal value in God's sight. And have different roles and responsibilities given to them by God in the family and in the church. Which means we do not teach, we do not believe that the Bible teaches that women can become elders and pastors. Believe the Bible is simply, extremely simply clear on this. Qualified men, which I say all men, qualified men can be elders. Men, husbands are to be the head of their families. Not a partnership in that sense. Of course, husbands and wives are partners. But it's not a partnership in that sense. There is male headship in the family. There's male headship in the church. And that could get me lynched in a lot of places in this country. (laughs) In a number of churches in this town... That's true. Churches in this town teach otherwise. Now, I don't go to church there, so I don't have any, I don't have any reason to be concerned about what's going on over there, other than for this point of pointing out, sensing the way the wind is blowing, people are prone to say, bigger is better, I'm going to offend people and move them away from here if I better not do that. And so the... Following the culture, the contorting of the Bible begins. 
Nobody believed in the church anything other than what I just said until the culture believed it. And the church followed into its idolatry. Now, obviously, I'm not being very kind here. This is, this is not the place to be kind. Unless you understand that truth is supremely kind. Truth is supremely kind and supremely gracious and supremely blessing to you. It is. God has given it and God is good. This is the same thing dropping down another level. When you're on a date, if you're a single person on a date and you're thinking, if I am uncompromising and I say no here in this moment, he is going to leave and never call me again. And I'm 32. Is truth good for you or not? There's great temptation there to to avoid the confrontation on the issue of truth and just say, "Ah, okay, I'll tolerate this. I'll, I'll play along with it. I'll go with it. To your destruction. It is not good for you. You do not win. You lose. Now coming back to the text. The faithful sound church wins. Look at verse 26. He says, The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end. My works. Jesus is very clearly about verse 19 works. Very clearly about that. And Jesus is also very clearly about verse 20 and following works. To keep Jesus' works is to be a person, to be a church that is about truth and love, both. To the one who keeps my works, all the way to the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. This is a stunning couple of verses here, because what he does here is he channels Psalm 2, I preached Psalm 2, I think back in November perhaps. Psalm 2 is the great enthronement psalm where the Son of God, which is another reason Jesus calls Himself the Son of God here, where the Son of God is enthroned and given authority by God the Father to triumph over and to possess all of the nations, given tremendous authority by God the Father. These couple of verses are, are quoting from that. And Jesus says, All of that's given to me, and I will give that to you. You will win. You will triumph over the nations, ruling them with a rod of iron like when earthen pots are broken in pieces. I had this authority from my Father, and I give it to those who hold to my works, all of them. The thing is, we are tempted to think 
that we, we win by working people. And I, I, I take the temperature of my audience or my culture and I say, what do they want? How do they respond? That's, that's how I better be and posture myself. And in fact, we win when God says, I give you my authority and it runs. Regardless of, of, of the culture around. That's the power that wins the victory. The authority that comes from Him. So, we need to think Jesus is about all of verse 19. He is about love and faith and service and patient endurance. And He is about the following verses about truth in the church. I want to be also, and I want us to be a church that is God. Help me to be a person, to be a church that is, so that we might be a place that is extremely comfortable for you and your spirit to dwell and through us to work, to accomplish whatever your purposes are, in whatever timing you choose, through small or large. How many guys did Gideon need? Just a handful. And they were there as witnesses, really. I I want us to be a people who, I'm I'm speaking here this morning, and I want to acknowledge this in front of you, I'm speaking here this morning with a little bit of, I think my tone, probably you're picking up on it too, I think my tone has an edge to it. And I'm trying to be a little edgy trying to, to cut something here. Because even in a church, I think most of us would think, we are a church that we're really pretty decent about doctrine. I can't tell you how many times, I can't tell you how many times in, in this church with people from among us, I hear something like, problem, 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 comma, have you seen how many people have left? I can't tell you how many times I've heard that in the last, I mean, six or seven years I've been here. Now, oftentimes the person saying that is about to leave. And I know where it's coming from. But what I'm saying is that those people all sat in this room. And how they're thinking, people in this church, so I, I can't say you and you and you, but this, this church, how they're thinking is, yeah, I, I've... I've got the theology here, and you're talking about truth. I'm way down with truth, of course, yes. But really what I'm thinking about is numbers. And that's the tool that I think is going to work when I bring it up with the pastor or the elder. Man, look at the numbers. Big does not win. Big is in itself irrelevant. Do you realize? Irrelevant. Now, of course, we pray, we hope for a revival to, to touch us and other churches in the valley, and other churches in the nation, so that, that every church would be big because it's full of people who are all the way fully sold on grace and truth. We, of course we want that. But that doesn't come by getting big churches. 
Big churches don't come by getting big churches. Big churches come when the power of God is poured out and it runs. That's what we need. We need God the Spirit to run. And for God the Spirit to run, He has to say, there's a people by whom I am not grieved, but instead am pleased and welcomed and, and, and let have my way among them. Man, that I can work with. And of course, He's God. He can work with anything. But do you understand what I'm saying? So I'm speaking with a little bit of an edge here this morning because I know that many people here are saying, yeah, 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 I got that. But some don't, even if you think you do. But I also want to say, maybe setting aside the edge, can you dream of something? Can you hope for something, for a people that are so beautifully and fully immersed in a God of truth, that that's the thing you want. He is what you want. He is what you believe is good, even if it's hard. Even if it rubs the wrong way. Even if some others aren't quite down with that. You want it. Even if it confronts what you what used to be about yesterday, you want it because you know that truth is good. Truth is God's love to you. Truth protects you from the danger and, and devastation of the world. Can you dream of a place like that and being a person like that? Oh, may he make us that. I mean, may he do that. I can't speak it into existence. I pray for it. Pray for it in me. I struggle with truth like you do. I struggle. I struggle like you do. People of God. God is extremely concerned that we be a people of good works. But even if we are a church, that is a marvelous example of love and faith and service and patient endurance. But we are not equally concerned that truth reign in the midst of us and instead tolerate Falsehood. We will not be a people pleasing to God. So I'm going to pray that we be something different. That we be all of those things by His grace and by His power. Pray with me. I'm thankful. Father, that through your Son, when he walked the earth, you told us that you would enable us to know the truth and that it would set us free. For those of us here who are believers, you have opened our eyes to the gospel. Thank you for that. We didn't figure it out because we're clever. You revealed it. Thank you for that. You saved us, and we need to continually experience that salvation. Save us again today. Save your people, Lord, today from error, from the fear of failing, 
the fear of losing. Give us a great confidence that the battle belongs to you, the victory is already yours, and you will give that same victory and that same authority to those who hold to you. Give us assurance of that, and then empower us to be that, to be people who hold to you. Father, we look for this to come from you. We are dependent on you and on your grace that ever works in us and ever changes us. So make it happen, I ask. And I pray this in Christ's name and for his glory in his church and through his church in the nations. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.